What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Rico's Watches podcast. I'm your host, Eric, and I'm joined today by Ben of Wrist of Today. How's it going today, Ben? Good evening. Nice, uh, nice to be on here. Thanks for, Rico. Thanks for inviting me on, Rico. Yeah, it's, uh, it's nice to chat with you and uh, be able to talk about all sorts of interesting topics. I know you uh, work in the Royal Navy Submarine Service, which I think is extremely interesting. Had a couple Submariners or one or two Submariners on the show before uh, from, from the States. And I think it'd be really mm-hmm. cool to hear about the, uh, the British perspective on it and kind of what, that, uh, what yeah. that's like and how that differs. And then, you know, you hear about obviously about watches for you the hobby for you and uh, some of the the interesting things that you've been doing in the watch space as well too um so yeah we're gonna definitely get into that before we do what do you have on the wrist today on the wrist today i have my 38 millimeter hamilton khaki field officers edition which is a watch that my most recent addition to the collection uh it's sitting on a 20 millimeter uh i believe it's a hamilton branded uh leather nato strap that suits the kind of Uh, vintage aesthetic of the watch and the history behind the watch which I quite like. Um, I've actually been walking today up in the Scottish Highlands and I took this watch with me um, this afternoon and uh, yeah it's uh, it's a great little wearer, it's really versatile, um, wears really comfortably and I really do enjoy the history and I appreciate the history behind this type of watch being the kind of infantry field watch from the Vietnam era. I've got a couple of watches kind of go along that stream of, of identity, but the, the Hamilton khaki field does it the best because it's, to me, it's the original or closest to the original. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great watch. Hamilton is a fantastic brand. Uh, epitomizes Americana for me. Um, yeah, love it. Brilliant. Uh, it's a very cool piece. And, you know, what, uh, what is it about, I guess, uh, that you look for in watches? Like with your work in, in the Royal Navy and in the submarine service, like how do you, I guess, how does that work inform your decisions on some of the watches that you purchase? You know, we were talking off camera a little bit ago and you mentioned mm-hmm. there's sort of a unique culture surrounding uh, timepieces in the uh, Royal Navy submarine service. That's correct. And there, and there is, and to be honest, that, that, that is kind of what influences my interest in watches to some extent. Um, I had an interest in watches way before I joined the Navy. Um, in fact, the, the watch that got me into watches was actually the Casio F91. And I'm, I'm sure there's a few of your listeners that would agree with the same statement. I'm, lot, I'm sure a lot of people have the same experience where they put a watch on their wrist and they get so much out of it. And that is still, in essence, what I look for in a watch is what I can get out of it. And its history, its lineage, its identity is what means the most to me. Um, but in the submarine service, watches have kind of like a, an identity of their own. They, they, they transcend their own identities and, and they bring on new ones within the service. So submariners are i don't know whether this is the case with american submariners i think it is to some extent in terms of like rolex and amiga as as is with every single you know um working branch of the watch world um but the submariners are absolute magpies for watches um in 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 the, in the navy in the navy uh in the royal navy submarine service um normal submariners earn a little bit more than um their their surface counterparts or their counterparts on land, say in the army or in the air force, um, because they get submariner pay, and mm-hmm. submariner pay is substantially more than their the wage that they would get if they worked on a ship, for example. So, a submariner that's serving on on board an astute class submarine, for example, could earn potentially thirty up to fifty percent more if they serve an X amount of years and they'd have a long career. They could earn up to twice the amount that their surface um, counterparts would earn. So a lot of this outlet, 
A lot of this outlet for that money is, of course, watches. So is, it, is, that, it is, that, sorry, is that because of like a hazard pay type thing or what is the rationale? Behind it's exactly that? what it is. Yeah. So when, when you get when you get qualified as a submariner, you earn your dolphins, uh, which is a patch that goes over your name on your uniform that identifies you as a qualified submariner. So the, the, the physical the physical purpose of the submariner patch is to identify qualified personnel on board that know where the valves are to shut down the bulkheads, where to isolate all the air supplies or hydraulic supplies or anything like that. And they also, they also know what to do in an emergency. So you can look to that individual when you're on board at sea on patrol and you can understand that they know exactly what they need to do and they know exactly what comes next. So it has a safety purpose. Um, but the, the, the dolphins are kind of like the pilot's wings for a submariner. So they, they have their own identity within the service as well. Um, you can get different badges being in the Navy. You can be a Royal Marines commando. You can be a pilot um, and you, or you can be a submariner. So it has that kind of, you know, um, that identity, that, that group. Um, that group coolness of being a submariner, it, it, it exists within the Navy. Um, so watches are something that a lot of people pick up in their, in their submarine, submarine career. Um, for, the, for the submarine service, the most there are two major, majorly iconic watches um, in the service. And one of those is the CWC SBS. So that, this is a watch that was born out of um, operations with the SAS, the SBS. Um, but it was also a watch that so, that somehow found its way into the guise of the submarine service. So the idea of the sketchiness, the idea of the denied ops kind of black ops kind of world that submarines exist within appealed to the people who started to pick these up through the Navy or used to purchase them off their own backs. And very often when you're at sea and when you're on patrol, you will see the coxswain in the control room, the captain potentially, um, one of the officers of the watch, they will be wearing a CWC SBS. It usually in its PVD glory black uh, with with an original Pusser's grey strap, which is the, you know British naval slang for the grey frigate strap that these things all come on when they're new. Mm. Um, and it is a watch which has massive popularity within the fleet uh, service as well. But in the submarine service, anybody who's anybody has a CWC SBS and there, there are two ways of getting one so well maybe three ways three ways is you either get one issued you're a big enough fish and you know enough people to have one issued to you for one specific kind of job or you know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy who can get you one uh, through stores or you can purchase one yourself uh, now there are quite a few of them about, and I, I don't necessarily know what the most common way of picking these up are, um, but they're usually on the wrists of you know experienced submariners that appreciate the watch for what it is, and they'll wear it down the boat, they'll wear it in the the uh, in the, in the, in the torpedo room, they'll they'll wear it on, on, on in the control room, they'll they'll keep it on the wrist twenty four seven. It'll get dinged on bulkheads, it'll get covered in machine oil, and it'll keep working. So it is a watch with a massive identity. Uh, the other one, of course, is a watch that I picked up recently and I mentioned in an article on the Recon Team watch blog page, um, who I write for, um, the Elliot Brown Camford RNSS. Now, Elliot Brown, um, massive, massively upcoming, uh, well-established now, uh, well-respected British watchmaker, makes some fantastic stuff at the moment. They've just started making the the Holton Professional, um, which is a, a 300 meter rated dive watch with a broad arrow on the, on the face. And that, that is now in the hands of SBS and SAS troopers in the UK. So whereas, whereas before we had CWC, 
and CWC SBS on the wrists of guys on the on the little boats and doing the operations and stuff in in the desert. Um, that's now shifted, and it's now shifted to the Elliot Brown Holton professional. So this is a watch which is becoming more and more popular. The Camford, um, the Camford RNSS was one of the first special projects that they did, and it was made available around 2018 to the Royal Navy Submarine Service. Um, this is a watch that you can only you can only get if you're um, a qualified submariner in the Royal Navy Submarine Service. So first of all, you have to join the Navy, you have to go on a submarine, you have to earn the dolphins, and then you're entitled to buy one. So that in itself makes it a rare watch. Um, you can get it with your name and service number engraved on the back, and that can make it your service watch. So whether, whether you realize it or not at the time when you pick one of these things up, you look at it and it has your name, it has your, your service number, it's got the dolphins on. So there's three things that are, that are you know, important and intrapersonal that you could look on years later and think, yeah, what I did was cool and that's a cool watch. And that's the whole point of it. Um, so this, this is a watch that's become very popular within the Navy. Um, it's seen a lot on the wrists of lots of submariners on board ships across and submarines across the fleet. Um, because obviously submariners will move platforms, some will go to ships, some will stay on submarines. Um, but all the shit, all the boats that I've been down, there's always one guy that's got one or one guy that's wearing one. And when the ship goes to sea on patrol, they will take that watch on purpose. So it gets the sea time and it gets used in the operations. And I kind of get, I kind of get the logic behind that because when you eventually leave the Navy for various different reasons, you you stood in your house and you pull open the drawer and you see that watch and you think I'm stood here in my room but I remember clearly where you know wearing that watch during action stations when we were on operations and that's that's what makes me want to keep that watch my whole life and that's that's the point of having these special edition um, special commission watches and Elliot Brown does that really really well um, part of that watch's sale also goes to charity so in the case of the RNSS Elliot Brown Camford. Uh, a lot of the money that comes from the charity goes to submariner charities, which goes to the guys in the field to make their lives a little bit more comfortable at sea, which is a great cause. Um, yeah, so th there are a variety of different kinds of watches, but that's also not to mention the the Rolexes that are out there, the Amiga Seamasters that are out there. Uh, one of the watches that's very popular at the moment that I've seen quite a lot of seniors wear on board submarines is actually the Amiga Seamaster No Time to Die. Mm. I've seen a plethora of those, which is surprising. Uh, I've seen enough now of those to kind of believe that, okay, this is a popular watch with those who can afford it. Um, so a lot of those have been used on, down on submarines doing the, doing the sneaky stuff. They're, they're, they're out there. Um, and, and the general Rolex Submariner, obviously named after the, the, the job that we all do. Um, but it is the Submariner's Grail watch. Every Submariner who's interested in watches can kind of take the accolade of, yeah, this is my grail watch. Disagree with that statement because I have a different grail, but um, for a lot of, for a lot of submariners that are interested in watches, like that is, that is the watch that they will, they will strive for. That is the watch that they will take off the bracelet. They'll put it on a Royal Navy uh, NATO colored strap. They'll put it on some kind of cool strap. I've seen it on gray pusses issue uh, CWC straps being worn at sea in the control room, like officers wearing them. And they, they do see the sea time. They do see the action. And so when you look at these guys, the working officers, and then start crying when they ding their watch on the door frame on the way to making a cup of coffee, these what these watches are being put over the top of fucking dry suits and being worn on the case in. They're being taken into the control room and they're, they're, they're being thrown around in the control room. 
making communications, doing that damage control, doing everything that they need to do. So they, they are out there doing the job. So yeah, I hope that answers your question, Rico. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very interesting. I mean, it seems like definitely sort of a definable watch culture in the, uh, in the uh, Submariner space, as it were. You know, what other pieces like do you sort of enjoy in your collection that maybe aren't necessarily connected directly to your work uh, in the Royal Navy? What would be sort yeah, of so, like, like I know you, you talked again kind of off camera about some other pieces that you picked and I'm kind of curious about what led you to pick those. Yeah. So um, my, my idea of my, my, my fascination with watches developed out of my time in the Navy and in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, military watches feature very heavily in all that. Um, I'm also very interested in history. Mm-hmm. So one thing that influences my interest in watches is how that watch interacts with history, especially I mean, we've in the twentieth century, we've got a plethora of interesting history. We've got the Cold War. We've got the world. We've got World War Two. You know, we've got we've got all kinds of different watches, and we've got all kinds of generations of Navy SEAL and SAS and and pilots and all kinds of people making history. And, and there's a watch on every single one of those guys' wrists. Mm-hmm. So that in itself bites my interest with watches. Um, however, one of the watches that I enjoy the most owning in my collection for no reason other than not that even I like the movie Predator or Commando. I mean, I did, obviously. They're, they're really, really good films, and I enjoy watching them. I mean, Predator, Predator is a great dit to put on when you're at sea. It gets the guys together, and we have a laugh about it. Um, but the, the Seiko Arnie is a fantastic watch. It's, it's a large watch, don't get me wrong. And the newer, the newer reissue version has uh, solar power, so... The older, the older version had the issue where it would just eat the battery very quickly. And that's what it was known for, was, was having a large amount of battery changes. The new one is solar power, which eliminates that problem. It wears, it, it wears big, but it doesn't because it's, it's lug to lug is so small. It wears like it's such a smaller watch. And for the first thing I did with mine was uh, take it off the Seiko uh, rubber strap and I put it straight on a fabric strap. And these days it lives on a 22 millimeter uh, fleet gray Zulu Alpha strap. Which are fantastic straps, by the way. I've got a, a fair few in my collection. I put all my high end or kind of watches that are kind of mid range that I use for work and I, I go out with. I, I put them on Zulu Alphas because they're stable and they're, they're well made and tough. The Arnie is no exception. Um, fantastic dive watch, uh, great in water, really tough. That plastic shroud on the watch really makes it really practical and, and light as well. Um, but the, the, the only reason I really like it is because it's a Seiko. Mm-hmm. My, my fascination with Seiko is forever growing. Um, they make so many models that I like. I mean, even in Apocalypse Now, Captain Willard stepping off the landing craft, checking his watch, and he's wearing a what is basically a turtle. You know, the, the and then Seiko have, have gone and released the the reissue of the of the, of the Willard, which is like my second down grail. It's like the watch I would one of the watches I would most like to own in the future. Um, Seiko is the, is a very much an everyman watch, and I totally agree with uh, Watches of Espionage's statement that Seiko is the Toyota of watches because that's absolutely true, and he nailed it on the head by saying that. Is because they they can be put through hell, and they can be worn casually at home, they can be worn for a kid's birthday, or they can be used at action stations, battle stations, on a submarine somewhere far away, and it will work all the same. And I respect what Seiko for that, given that they don't cost a fortune as well and most people can get their hands on them. It's fantastic. Um, another watch in my collection that I really enjoy 
it is because of it is because of sea patrols that I've done um, is the Hamilton Murph, and I've spoken about this a couple of times. I've never actually I've mentioned it in a post on my Instagram, but I've never actually um, talked about it much up until recently when I mentioned it on a couple of other podcasts. But the Murph to me has an interesting meaning in that it is a very well made watch. It is a, it is a very a very enjoyable watch to own. It's it's comfortable. It looks fantastic. Um, I actually put mine on a Hirsch uh, performance strap, which is a hybrid leather and and uh, soft plastic strap that makes it waterproof. The band waterproof and makes that 100 water, meter water resistance a little bit more usable and makes the watch more comfortable. <clears throat> Excuse me, but um, the the Murph for me um, stands out because. I, most of my service was predominantly uh, is still uh, predominantly served on Vanguard class submarines. Now, these, for those who don't know, are the submarines that carry Trident, which is the the UK's uh, nuclear deterrent. I hear a lot of people's ears pricking up because this is an interesting subject. These these submarines go on very long patrols, and they are, the crews of those submarines spend a very long time away from home. They are amongst the highest. Uh, of the guys in in the in the UK armed forces and guys and girls in the armed forces that rack up LSA, which is longer separation allowance and days from away from home. Uh, it's a very important job, and the guys and girls who do that job every single day have a massive amount of mental resilience in order to to accomplish that, uh, and they deserve all the respect that they that they're due. Um, but these patrols are very long and. When you're on board a Vanguard class submarine, you work in shifts. So you, you, every day you get up twice. And each one, one watch is six hours, then you have six hours off, and then you're up again for six hours, and then you have another six hours off. And this can go on for hundreds of days, hundreds and hundreds of days. Um, and your perception of time and how that works and how that time passes changes depending on how you're feeling, how the people around you are feeling, what you're doing. It, it, it totally depends on, on, you know, what kind of mental state you're in when you're deployed. And one thing that resonated me uh, when I came back from my third patrol was the film Interstellar. Now, I had seen this film before, um, years ago when it was released. Um, but after, my, after, after a substantial amount of time away, I, I rewatched the scene where Matthew McConaughey returns to his spacecraft after going down to the surface of the planet where every minute is like eight years back on Earth. And he, know, he goes down to that planet knowing that he's given up time of watching his daughter grow up, watching his son grow up, and he knows how, how, what it's costing him. And he returns to the spacecraft and he watches the videos of his kids like years of videos that he, he's missed and it, it, it gets emotional and he realizes just how long he's been away. And the one thing that resonated me the most with that was that's kind of how it felt being on board a submarine for such a long amount of time, because you don't see the sunlight for the entire patrol and the submarine generally, you know, you spend most of that operation within a very small environment, closed environment, where you were expected to fulfill your role, fulfill it to the best you can. But you don't have a concept of whether the sun's up, whether the sun's down. 
the only thing that that you do have a concept of is when your next meal is because every single day rotates around whether it's breakfast lunch or dinner mm. and that is how we keep track of what time of day it is um now when you return from sea and you come home you there's people might find out that their friends have had kids um their partners have left them their, their parents may be ill or they might have a relative that died they might have friends that just aren't there anymore and that monumental shift in what you believe the outside world to be like in your head when you're looking forward to coming back to it compared to what it was when you left is the thing that made me realize that time is incredibly important and how you spend it in life as you have to look at it as a resource rather than something that simply passes through your fingers so when i watched interstellar and when i saw this i looked at the watch and when hamilton released it as as a watch but that you could buy as identical to the one in the film years after the film came out i just thought that's fantastic that's a brilliant way of of connecting myself in my orological interest to what i've experienced watching this film so i went out and bought one and i got one for a damn good price as well and i bought it and i wear it a lot and it is a fantastic watch automatic dead comfortable uh way bigger than than the darky field that i'm currently wearing um but still a, a brilliant watch and it resonates with me every time i wear it so that's another one having these connections with these watches in my collection just means that i will never sell them mm-hmm. and that's that's absolutely how it should be and for anybody who is in a in a position with their collection where say they have bought a resco they've bought a sangin and they say right that's the watch i wanted because i am a navy seal i am a us marine um i am you know i'm in the i'm in the i'm in the british army whatever um so and they are asking themselves where do i go from here the 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 advice that i would give them is to buy the watch that resonates with them i mean yes watches might look good watches might do the thing you want them to do but you'll understand very quickly whether they'll stick around in your collection or not based on how you feel about them because your personal connection to a watch is what's going to make them stick around because when somebody points to it on your wrist and goes that's a nice watch you can then tell them about it and you can tell them about your own personal connection to it as long as they're interested mm-hmm. but you can explain that to them and then very often what happens is that's how the watch bug gets started it's somebody else because then they appreciate the bezel then they appreciate the fact that the watch can go down to 200 meters the fact that you've taken it off the standard bracelet and you've put it on a fabric strap why would you do that some people are like why would you do that bracelet was fine why have you put it on a, a zulu alpha strap what how much did you pay for it why would you do that but then you explain it and you tell them about it and it's a rich it's a rich backstory to the reason that you did it and, and they're fascinated by it and they say that's so cool i'm going to do that as well and especially in the military um that is what happens that is how the watch thing gets started so yeah well it's interesting yeah. it sounds like you like you know you have this very like infectious enthusiasm for the watches mm-hmm. and the storytelling behind them and, and i think that's i think that's an interesting point i mean that's if anyone who's been a watch person for a while, you know, I think we all have a story of how we sort of, uh, you know, pass the disease on to our loved ones or our friends. <laughs> disease or something is a like, good word. <laughs> to our friends or things like that, the sickness, as it were, um, because they start to kind of feel that enthusiasm and that and that storytelling and that that element of these are more than just things. They're they're things that connect us to time. They're things that connect us to memories. Right. Um, you know, I, I feel like some of that 
some of that is also translated into some of your other work that you've done with the recon team watch blog. Can you talk about how that sort of happened for you and sort of what uh, contributions you've made there? Yeah, so um, I was contacted by Justin through the magic work and the God's God work, God's work of Instagram. Yeah. Now, the watch world is very wide. It's very, um, it's very broad, and there are lots of people that live within it. But we all live within this thing called Instagram, which is the thing that got it started the most. So, I, I, I had my own personal Instagram, and I was spamming people with watch photos for years, and it got to the point where I was doing it so much that my friends or people I knew from work that I hadn't seen in years would come up to me and go, they wouldn't go like, oh, you're the guy from training or you're the guy from I saw you on this course. They go, you're the watch guy. You're the guy who uploads the wrist shots all the time. I know you. And it's like, yeah, but I know you from somewhere else, mate, don't I? <laughs> so I had to separate the two. And in the start of 2022, I created uh, Wrist of Today, um, which is my attempt at uh homogenizing a watch culture with a kind of platform to uh, include other people with the same interests very quickly that bred into um how, how can i put this Mili military watch pervery is probably the best way to put it uh, amongst other guises and tasks that we do mm -hmm. um but it, it, it definitely brought a lot of people of a lot of similar minds under the same umbrella of the interest in watches and i've met some amazing people doing it i've met people from all over the world including yourself rico and it's i've gone around the world and back again looking at the way that every single culture and, com and country looks at watches and what they're used for and not only my my own military experience have been included in that but i've also had the opportunity to explore other people's military watch journey within their own careers i mean yourself as a police officer uh, i know of a couple of uh police officers in the nypd on my instagram that collect watches and the way that they view watches and it's really interesting i think that's absolute like golden in terms of the way that you can view watches in the world and expand your own interest in the hobby that's it's, it's just fuel for it um <clears throat> excuse me one of those people uh that i met uh through wrist of today was justin now justin lives in Forestburg in Texas. Uh, he's a former uh, US Air Force um, firefighter. Uh, he left the service in 2000, I think it was 2017. He said, he said it was Trump that discharged him. Let's go with that. Um, and he has a similar, he has pretty much the same interest as me in watches. Um, he's recently picked up a CWC himself because he's, he's been talking to Dan from, from the Zulu Time podcast and we all kind of sat in this group chat going, I like CWCs too, Dan. Yeah, I do. I don't have one. I'm in Texas. Have mine. And it's kind of like that. So, but my, my, um, my working relationship with Justin started um, it's kind of at the end of 2022 when Rissa Today had been going for a few months. Um, he cottoned on that I was a submariner and I, and I spun him this dit, this amazing dit about, similar to what I've just told you about the way that watches interlink in the submarine service and i remember the conversation that i had with him was about the vostok amphibia now for those listening that don't know or might be surprised to know um one of the most common um watches that feature on royal navy submarines on operations is the vostok amphibia and the reason for this is the reason for this is because well there's the, there's the obvious one is that the watch is cheap mm -hmm. uh you can pick them up on ebay for under 100 pounds if you want to 
uh, and a lot less on secondhand markets on eBay and such. Um, but the watch is reliable and it's easy to use. And for guys who are interested in watches who understand it, spending 70 quid on an automatic dive watch is a no-brainer. Um, however, for the submarine service, these, these Vostok amphibious have submarines on the dial and no less Russian submarines which instantly makes them massively interesting. So not only the amphibia, but also the common Drisky as well. You'll yeah. see with the uh, submarine on the dial, they do often make appearances on British submarines. And I'm sure in at some point in the last 20 or 30 years, there's been British and uh, American and Russian submarines all circling the globe. And all of them have got Russian, have all got Vostok amphibias on them. I wouldn't be surprised if that would be the case. Um, but yeah, as a venerable watch, the Vostok Amphibia is fantastic. So I was telling Justin this, I was saying like, did you know that the Vostok Amphibia makes a quite a, a feature on board British submarines? And you'd be interested to know that the guy on the radar, the guy on the combat system, the guy on the bridge looking out for the officer of the watch is probably, or has at some point worn a Vostok Amphibia. And he was massively interested by this. Um, and he said, well, will you write me an article about, you know, your experience with watches in the submarine service? And the first article I wrote for him was kind of like a little interlinking story of how a submarine comes back into port, but with all these watches involved, where you would find them, who's wearing them, just to, just to get the picture in people's minds of how involved watches are with the submarine service and the people that work in this, in this, uh, in this area. And yeah, he loved it. And uh, it's still available. It's still on the recon team. Um, it's still on the recon team watch blog for anybody who's interested in going finding it. Um, I'll give you details at the end. Um, but it, and, I, and I followed it up with another article where I, I wrote more about these watches and how they're interesting. Um, watches that feature notably in that are the RNSS Canva that I've discussed in the CWC SBS uh, and the Vostok Amphibia. And, all, and he was massively interested in this, as I'm sure a lot of people would be. And yeah, it took off from there, really. Um, I'm in the process of writing another article for him at the moment. Uh, this one isn't so much focused on submarines, uh, more focused on the experience at the moment of owning, in my collection, the Khaki Field uh, 38mm mechanical and the um, Murph, which are two very different watches made by the same manufacturer, and they both do completely different things so i'm gonna write a little article about that and I've, i also own in my collection which kind of ties into these two watches somewhere in the middle uh a timex camper mark one the the uh the reissue i guess you could call it if we're if all brands are now using the same word of reissue out of their archive but um this is a the, the mark one is a watch uh that came out of timex's archives kind of from like the late 1970s early 1980s but what it actually is is the first iteration of the camper and the first iteration of the camper was pretty much a carbon copy of the watch that timex were making for the military contracts for the infantry in vietnam during the war and this is a plastic 38 i think oh, it might be 36 30 a very small watch um on a green fabric strap that was designed to be issued on mass um to massive amount of troops being drafted into vietnam and that in itself is the reason why I found this watch so interesting. Um, a lot of uh, American young men being drafted into the US Army and US Marines during the Vietnam War that came from poorer backgrounds, that might be the first watch that they ever owned. And it's a military, and it's a military field watch. 
Um, so I found this watch extremely interesting uh, in, its, in its history and its lineage, which is why I picked one up. And I draw a line between the Hamilton Kharki Field and the Murph and ask the question, where does this watch come? Or does it come past Kharki Field? You know, that, what, where is this watch interlinked with, with these watches that we wear today? So that is something that I'm going to touch on um, with my next article, Recon Team Forestberg. Um, but it's recently got uh, four new contributors. Uh, so we're about eight in number now uh, from all over the world, from different backgrounds. Um, some really interesting guys. I won't say on here what they do, uh, but there's a, there's a variety of different military proficiencies in that. Uh, really interesting perspective on watches from that as well. So, yeah, it's exciting and it, and it is growing. Um, the recon team uh, watch blog is as long as it has more contributors and more people writing for it uh, and sharing their experiences. As I've, as I've said, it's not just Instagram that's doing it. it, it our experiences of how we interact with watches and what makes them interesting to us is our best language on how to explore these watches and what makes them interesting to us. Because one person might have made that connection and another might be looking to make it. So, yeah, it, it's really good. I've enjoyed being a part of it and I'm looking forward to doing some more work with it. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. It's one of those, um, you know, groups or I guess sort of presences in the watch space that, you know, I, I became aware of kind of early on and kind of saw it pop up. And I'm like, hey, what is this all about? But you're starting to see it develop and pop up more and more and more and sort of become its own entity. So it's really exciting to see. And it's cool to kind of bring people from these uh, operational backgrounds and these interesting backgrounds to kind of give them a voice to share their perspective in the watch space as well, too. It goes, right. it goes beyond just kind of the regular, you know, uh, wearing your wool cardigan and driving your vintage Porsche voice that we sort of get to, to hear on the daily in the yeah. watch space, right? It provides kind of don't, a different... Don't get me well, it's yeah, more, don't it gives a more wrong. relatable perspective, right? So yeah, I don't have an issue with that. I mean, I think I think the luxury side of watches is, I mean, it's what grabbed my interest in in high end watches in the first place. But what I've come to appreciate every day with watches is how I relate to it as a person. I'm not saying that the that when you when you scroll down on Instagram on the search and you and you look at like. I don't know, you get the Hodinky, Hodinky posts and you get like the Porsche AP posts. And it's like sat there wearing your Casio Juro thinking, yeah, yeah, I resonate with that. You know, well, it's, I have no issue. It's, it, I don't either. I mean, as a guy who has, you know, his wool LL Bean cardigans and drives a vintage Porsche, but also does sketchy <laughs> operational things, I find myself sort of caught up in the dichotomy of the two and trying to appreciate the best of both. But at the same you know. time, it's also like, you know, I think that's more relatable, particularly in in the space that we enjoy uh, watches in the most to kind of have guys that are actually wearing them to do interesting things, not just cocktail bars in Manhattan, but, you know, banging them off the yeah. bulkhead of a submarine or scraping them up yeah, on that's right. a patrol car, and, right? So, yeah, that is the two sides of, of those kind of watches, especially namely the Rolex Submariner. You can right. find it in a cocktail bar in Manhattan. Or you can find it on the wrist of an SBS or SAS operator going straight into the fight after a briefing. You know, it could be one or the other. And that's, that's the fantastic thing about it. 
I'm sure there's some philosophical thing that would be interesting to talk about the duality of man in there, but that'd probably be a whole other podcast. So I think I find it, I find it very interesting, very interesting, but you know, yeah. I think it's really interesting that you're doing that, that writing. And I think it's a very uh, valuable platform that's being created there at the recon team, uh, a watch blog, but going back to you for a minute as well, because we've talked a lot about the culture um, in the Royal Navy submarine service. We talked a lot about the watches and about the watches you've worn, but what was it specifically for you that drove you towards the Royal Navy and then wanted and made you want to become a submariner? So uh, I grew up in the north of England, uh, in a small town. If you draw a line between Liverpool and Manchester, uh, that's where I'm from. Uh, it was a small industrial town where not much happens. A lot of the heavy industry left in the in the 1980s, so jobs weren't thick on the ground, let's say. So I was interested in joining the Navy um, simply because one day I was walking out of college uh, or sixth form or whatever you call it over there or in america i was 17 years old and i was i was leaving class with my friend and his brother was picking us up and i walk out the back of the school and i walk over to the road and he says my brother's here he's parked outside and walk out and parked in the street at the time was a brand new convertible black bmw uh, 325i and i'm kind of like i thought you said he was 21 He's like, yeah, he is 21. I was like, right, that's weird. Got in the car with him. And I was like, what do you do? And he goes, I'm a submariner. I was like, ah, okay. That's, that's interesting. I like that. So, yeah, 21-year-old, newly qualified submariner. What does he go out and buy? A BMW. Of course he does. Uh, I did the same thing. Uh, so, yeah, that's how initially I was interested in it. However, speaking to submariners and watching what they do, and the kind of operations that they they undertake uh, every year, the kind of secret, uh, sketchy, kind of black ops nature of the submarine service, deniable ops, just got me hooked from the start. Uh, I started out in the Navy Reserves, uh, and then I went full-time. I went straight into the submarine service. And I think from signing papers to getting on my first patrol, I think it was like six months or eight months because of my training was really short. Um, and I got struck straight into it. And as soon as I got on board a submarine and got involved in those kinds of operations, I just found it infinitely interesting. It's like when, when you first go down a submarine and the submarine's leaving port and it's at night, it's dark, it's quiet. You're in the, you're in the control room and everybody's just doing their jobs. It's, it's like there's like a blue light hue from all the screens in the control room with the green lights. and everybody's silent and you just stood there in the corner watching this happen just thinking this is a big deal this is what we're here to do and that that is what that is what got me hooked from the start with the with the career of being a submariner um obviously the the identity of being a submariner you're carrying on a lot of lineage from the second world war uh, we are kind of like the modern equivalents of the fighting 10th out in malta in in, in the mediterranean um so we i mean the Winston Churchill said himself, there's, 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 there's dangers, there's perils within the British Armed Forces who's talking during the war, but none of which that have faced the most perils of that of the submariner. And I do believe that we give up an awful lot. We fight very hard for, for a very noble endeavour. So that is what got me hooked and interested. Um, yeah, watches came with it. And, and the, the interest in watches stemmed from that. So, yeah. It's it's an interesting career. Uh, it's it's an interesting job. I'm sure there's lots of sketchy people and interesting 
kind of uh, high tier SF stuff that you guys that you've spoken to would say the same. Once you get your hand in the sandbox and start working, the opportunities come. And even just by doing the normal day job, you'll find yourself in situations and operations where you think this is cool. This is this is not the everyday, and and that's what you appreciate later on. Absolutely, absolutely. It's those. Uh, I think like once in a while, and I was sharing a little bit of that with you. Uh, off camera about how sometimes you just have these moments in your job that are like once in a career or something like that. And you're just like, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this right now. Right. Like it's, <laughs> it's pretty good. You got to have that surreal yeah. moment once in a while, like you're kind of describing where it's nighttime and you're leaving port yeah. and things like that. And it's sort of just like, I can't believe I get to do this and they pay me money for it. Yeah. There's like, there's, there's moments. I mean, I had a, I had a couple of civvy jobs before I joined full time in the Navy and there's been moments uh, in my job where, because I, I work in the control room of a submarine, it gets so busy and it's such an intense environment. You realize that you are an integral part of a machine that's dealing with with a great big, long, black underwater ship filled with explosives and nuclear weapons and a nuclear reactor. And you think, actually, this is really important, so I better not fuck this up. So, and you're you're the one calling the information that's 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 that that all the, the old command and 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 the important guys trying to work out what to do are listening out for, and then you realize like I'm getting paid for this right now, but this is pretty fucking important. Yeah, and that's awesome. yeah, it's 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 a really interesting thing to be a part of on on a daily basis when we are deployed. Um, alongside outside from that, um when we don the uniform, when we go out there and when we stand next to our surface counterparts wearing our dolphins, we are instantly distinguishable between them. And I wear those dolphins proudly on my chest because we are different, inherently different. The job we do is different. The training we, we have to undertake is different. And it's, it's something to be proud of. It's something to be massively proud of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What would you say would be some of your most memorable moments? from your training or from your career as a submariner? I was wondering where that question was going. <laughs> um, most memorable moments. Um, I do remember we were, the, we were one of the last classes to do uh, the escape tower down at Gosport. Um, so I don't know if you've ever seen it on YouTube or anybody listening knows what I'm talking about. Um, but in Gosport at Fort Blockhouse uh, in Portsmouth, there is a or was a massive great big like 50 foot uh 20 odd meter uh escape tower now this is filled with water it's a giant column of water with a hatch at the bottom um and the idea is to simulate a submarine escape so i didn't actually get to do this and i'm gutted that i never did and some of the older submariners that i still do serve with have done it and they were the very last ones to do it. I think they stopped doing it in about 2007. Um, so, yeah, you, you, go in the you go in the compartment at the bottom, that fills with air, and the, suit, the escape suit you're wearing fills with air. And basically what you have to do is shoot up this 20-foot tower of water all the way to the surface, and you have to breathe out. If you don't breathe out uh, and you try and hold your breath, uh, your lungs will pop like a balloon. So... Yeah, being being the last class, to, one of the last classes to go through that and see that tower, uh, we did all of our um, life raft and escape survival drills at the top of it. Mm -hmm. So the idea is, was you jumped in from the top, you swam down, you came back up to kind of, and then you start doing your survival drills. And I remember the moment when I actually opened my eyes underwater and looked down and saw like 
like what felt like hundreds of feet of water below me. It was one of those terrifying things I've ever seen in my life. Just water, just all the way down. It's like being in a being at the end of a barrel of a very long gun. It was it was insane. Uh, but yeah, that that was that was cool. Um, other, I mean, I can't really divulge much else other than, other than that in terms of operational stuff. Sure. Um, but there have been moments where it's got very heated. There are moments where uh, there's a lot on the line and there's a lot of information flying around the compartment that you're in, uh, whether that's emerg- actual emergencies, um, so fires and stuff like that, damage control stuff, that can get intense. You, you, your communication between people and how you act in a scenario like that and take charge of your own body and the, and the, and, and how you conduct yourself and how you take control of what is, it is you're going to do next and make that information flow in your brain is something that I will probably take away from this job and apply elsewhere to great effect. Uh, I believe that anybody who has the nous to kind of in, introduce that into other things is, is really valuable. That's that's one thing that I've take I've gotten out of it. Um, I imagine that's yeah, a uh, skill set to develop, though, right? Like when you think about it, like not only are you you're not you're literally working under pressure, but I mean you're 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 in a tube full of a bunch of guys who are stuck with each other for months and months and months at a time. I have to imagine that if there's an issue with someone who's like a cancerous teammate or someone who causes issues or things like that, that can lead to some pretty yeah. nasty uh, fights or arguments and things like that. It can. It and can. I, I imagine, it can a... I imagine they're pretty quick to get rid of people that are causing problems like that as well, too. Well, you'd, you'd say that, but actually one of the most professional things you can do in that kind of environment is put your differences aside and, and focus on doing your job to the best of your ability mm-hmm. because a true professional will find a way to make it work with that person and achieve the same thing without saying i'm not working with this guy fuck this guy i'm not doing it a true professional will find a way around it and conduct and conduct themselves in the job properly and they'll find a way to make it work um that's not to say that that problem does exist it absolutely does there are some personalities and opinions that clash on on a submarine patrol that's like 140 150 days long and it, it can happen and it often does happen um but as soon as the general alarm goes off and you all realize that your common interest is now staying alive mm-hmm. that that ability to work together becomes very very streamlined very very quickly the amount of training and the quality of the training that we undertake um is very serious and it is a very to a very high level and i mean some days I lie, I lie awake at home in, in my own bed just thinking like, oh, there's no general alarm going to go off. I'm not going to have to get up and get my overalls on and get into a firefighting suit saying someone I don't like in a compartment somewhere. But it's ingrained. That thought of I'm going to bed now, is there a reason I'm going to have to get up? Potentially. Why? And that kind of thought process becomes natural to, to, to a submariner. Um, on a surface ship, um, I mean, I've been told stories of, of stuff that happens. If there's a fire on board a surface ship or a flood, um, there's a designated team that goes out to put out that fire or deal with that flood. Uh, on an aircraft carrier, for example, of about 1,500 people, um, that fire or flood might be dealt with about maybe 20, 30, 40 people in a damage control team that are on duty that day. On board a submarine, if there's a fire or a flood, everyone's up. Everyone's up. Everyone's into overalls. Everybody's in, got their, their their breathing systems on. They're they're going to the scene of that incident and they're all chipping in to solve that problem. Um, 
So <laughs> the difference between uh, a, a sailor on a, um, as we call them, matlow, on a, on a surface ship and a submarine is that a submariner is ready for anything. A submariner is ready for any kind of emergency or out, outcome where they know that they're going to have to play a role. And that mindset of what's next, what do I need to do? You know, you could put a submariner on any part of the submarine, whether it's back after the engine room or it could be all the way forward in on one on one deck or in, in the control room. And they will know exactly how to conduct themselves in an emergency situation in that area because they're trained to do that. Um, and that's the major difference. And and yeah, it, it can be it can be something that you can that's great to take away as a, as veterans out of the submarine service, that kind of attitude of you know, I, I, I can take on the responsibility that I am required to take on is, is very valuable. Mm-hmm. You touched on a little bit of the, uh, the training, uh, you know, in your class that you did, but can you talk a little about the selection and then also a little bit more of like, I guess a general walkthrough of what some of the training looks like. Like mm-hmm. uh, I imagine there must be, you know, sort of um, similar to like how NASA will train astronauts on modules that are here on earth on how everything works. And there's like, they must have like uh, submarines on land that you learn in first before they then put you <laughs> in the water, I would think. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm laughing at that. You know, you know, a lot of the guys that, that, that join the Navy and go and be a submariner, they, they come from all kinds of backgrounds. Like some guys come out straight out of university. There's other guys who failed their GCSEs, failed all their tests at high school and went straight in. And these are ordinary guys from ordinary families in ordinary parts of the country. And the fact that they're even being compared to submariners and the <laughs> astronauts in the same conversation would probably make them smile. Um, the, short, the short answer of, of it is being a submariner is a job that you learn by doing. Mm. It is a job that you, you, you pass the tests, you, you go to and do the courses that you need to do. But at the end of it, you're expected to learn on the job and you're expected to learn quickly. So the, the, the general training process of a submariner, everybody joins HMS Rally phase one. Everybody does the same basic training. Once that's completed, um, depending on you, your trade, so whether you're an engineer, you might be a chef, you might be a tactician like myself, you might be a, a communications rating or some kind of weapons engineer, whatever. Um, you go to your prospective part of the country and do your training there, or you might be a medic as well. Um, once that's completed, um, you then head up to Faslane, uh, which is he, uh, here in Scotland, and you uh, undertake a, uh, a, a, a what's called a, a dry SMQ. So that's a submarine qualification. So you're expected to do tests, you're expected to, to learn, all the basics of the submarine in which you are joining. So whether that's an astute class submarine or a Vanguard class submarine, uh, the um, Trafalgar class submarines are starting to be phased out now. So they're less so these days, um, but A's and V's, you'd be definitely looking at, you know, how does it function? What are the safety features on it? One of the first things that you will learn is where is all the firefighting equipment? How does the firefighting equipment work? You know, how is it relevant to you in your part of ship? That's exactly the kind of type of thing that you'll have to get to grips with. Um, once all that's completed, uh, you then head to a, an actual submarine. And once you get on board, you're handed a task book. And this hasn't changed since, like, for the last 50 years. It's, it's never changed, maybe even since the war. Um, you are expected to put overalls on, grab this task book, at this task book, and go crawling around all the spaces, back aft, in the submarine, 
or forehead and you're expected to find all the life-saving valves and all the life-saving systems and get a really good fucking understanding of where everything is so that when your life depends on it or when somebody else's life depends on it, you can go and perform your task properly and do that damage control just as well as a lieutenant can or just as well as the, as the captain of the, of the boat can. You're expected to, to, to provide the same standard in that kind of life-saving situation. Um, once that's completed, um, you have a board and then you get presented with the dolphins and that's when you're considered qualified on that platform. If you go to another platform of submarine, you're expected to do it all over again. So there's no simulators. There's no submarines on land. I mean, there would be really interesting if, if there was. Uh, it would be really cool to go on a submarine and do dry drills. That would be, that would be a good day at work. <laughs> I would love to instruct that. Um, but no, there isn't. Um, the only submarines are the ones that are out there doing the job. And the guys who find themselves in there are expected to do the job that they have trained to do and they're expected to learn quickly. So, yeah, um, it, it, it's something that you have to be mentally prepared for as well. Um, very often, I mean, in my case, um, I, I finished my dry course and went straight to a submarine um, pretty quickly. And when I got on board, they had just returned from uh, workup, which is kind of like training to go on deployment. And they were like, yeah, we'll go in in a week. Uh, we're going on patrol in a week. And I'm like, a week? Yeah, you've got, you've got seven days, get your shit together, and we're going. Mm. <laughs> and I went back to my, I went back home, said goodbye to my family, did all the things I needed to do. And the next time I was down on the submarine, which was the second ever time I'd been down one, uh, was to go on patrol. And that was a long patrol. And I think I went from basic qualification to dolphins in like six or seven weeks and you're expected to work for six hours and then be up, up on your off watch sacrifice your sleep to go into all these compartments and do that task but you're expected to do it quickly so that you can contribute to the submarine mission and that is the ethos of a submariner is that you know there is that expectation that you will and, and you're capable of far more than you actually imagine yourself to be mm-hmm. and yeah it's, it's, it's dead cool sounds like there's also this element of cross training, like everyone on the submarine needs to be able to kind of do their job. And then also these other like general jobs that everyone needs to be capable of. And then there's potentially yeah. also training. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go. Yeah. I wouldn't go as far as expecting, you know, somebody in the engine room to go and cook the scram and then the chef to go back to the engine room and look after the nuclear reactor. I wouldn't mm-hmm. go that far. Um, mm-hmm. But there is, there is an element of um, if, if an engineer is forward, and there's a fire they know exactly what to do if the chef for some reason has to go back after for any reason and speak to the submariners back there then they will know what to do back there and that's that's the idea yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's sort of like that goes back to that idea like with the u.s marines where everyone's a rifleman right like regardless mm-hmm. of regardless of what you do you have to be able to pick up a rifle and be useful if shit hits the fan right that's right it's exactly what it is and very often um we will have uh senior submariners who are in the training division that will come on board and they will if there's a real emergency that isn't for training they will jump in because they know exactly what to do so even if you've got like lieutenant commanders and senior officers who haven't been to sea for some time if there's a fire if there's if there's damage control that's needed or or the submarine goes to action stations they will jump in and they will jump in 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 even a junior role if they have to because they know exactly what to do Hmm. yeah the training is vitally important 
Can you talk a little bit about your specific role as a tactician and what that entails? So my branch as a, um, a warfare specialist tactical submariner, our branch deals with um, basically creating a tactical picture that the captain and the officer of the watch on board the submarine can understand. So we're, we're a little bit like the guys on the front row in Star Trek. So if you imagine uh, cruising along in the ocean and there's a ship in the distance, we need to know how fast that ship is going, where it's going, what it is likely to be, and uh, we need to be able to plan our way around it. So our role as a tactician is to do that for every contact that we have that's mm -hmm. out there in the ocean and create this picture of what the submarine can see through its sonar, even if it's not visual, you know, for obvious reasons, that'd be the periscope or whether we're on the surface or for, for a normal ship, that would be plotting what you can see ahead of you. Um, but on board a submarine, that idea of having a good grasp on the tactical picture is all about getting the upper hand in combat and knowing what the next move of whatever vessel out there is going to be. Um, a tactician's job is also to do a lot of the war fighting and uh, a lot of mathematical uh, calculations of ranges and, and stuff like that. So that, that's, that's something else we will do is, is be able to tell, how, tell the command how far things are away and what they're going to do. Mm. So, yeah. That sounds very interesting. And so like, would that be like also figuring out, like you said, kind of figuring out like what something is as well too. So that would that include like operating like the sonar and things like that, or would that be? Um, a I believe, I be yeah, I believe in the U S submarine service, they have a, um, a joint branch, a combined branch of that kind of war fighting and sonar capability. I don't know that for sure because I haven't spoken to an equivalent of myself in in the US Navy uh, but it's what I've been told um in in the Royal Navy it's different um they, we have guys simply to operate the the sonar equipment uh simply to identify a ship so all everything comes through as a sound everything comes through as a signature that signature could be a trawlerman bringing in a net or it could be you know, it, it could be a facility bike or something like that. It could be a Russian warship. And that and that difference is how that branch uh, works on a daily basis is identifying what that contact is. Is it a threat to us? If so, what is it? It does it have, I mean, some fishing vessels can have uh, a fish finding capability, um, which is like a mini sonar. Um, and our, our mission of remaining unseen and remaining hidden is you know that that could potentially challenge that just something we need to to think about um so even that can be can be notable so identifying a platform and what it is capable of is is mainly what we we as a warfare branch do yeah hmm. very very cool it sounds like a very interesting uh a very interesting gig to have for sure man yeah yeah pretty I've cool been, stuff um, I've been working in recruitment uh, for some time. Um, so when we discuss this kind of thing with the public, it is extremely mm -hmm. difficult to give them an outline of um, what it is that we do exactly without going into too much detail. Yeah. Mm. Oh, very cool. Um, back to watches for a little bit. What's sort of next for you in the, in the watch space, I guess? What can we expect to see mm. more of from you? In the watch space, uh, there's, it's, it's a variety of things that I would like to add to the collection. I'm currently 
burgeoning on 15 watches at the moment. Um, I have a Grail watch, and that Grail watch is an Amiga Seamaster 300. One day that will come. That um, would love the blue, the blue one with the with the wavy dial. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just the quintessential. I would even take a uh, early two thousands example from the Brosnan era, which would be really special to me. But I would love a ceramic bezel one. Mm-hmm. Um, apart from that, like I said, the Willard. Uh, Willard is something I would love to add to the collection. I love Apocalypse Now. I love everything the film stands for and the way it portrays the war. Um, and to me, that is like King Seiko sort of thing so i'd love to to add that um on the smaller side um i would really like to get my hands on a pulsar g10 i don't know if that's a a watch that you've heard of before Mm -hmm. uh yeah so the the the, the mod um british army uh uk forces contract that was active in the early 2000s and i have mentioned this on the on the blog um was a small um 37 38 millimeter um field watch on a, on a gray pusser strap and this is a watch that was worn by prince harry on his deployment into afghanistan and it's kind of in the submarine service it's kind of seen as the old salts watch like you must have got that from a guy long ago and still be wearing it on board like it's it's a proper cool old school submariners watch so i'd love to i'd love to get my hands on one of those um i know they're going for a few hundred quid on ebay so eventually i will pick one of those up um I actually have a uh, SRP triple seven uh, Seiko turtle as well, um, which is with Seiko being serviced at the moment. Um, so it actually does feel like I need to buy that watch, but I already have it. It's been with them for that long. Mm. Um, I'm going to slap that on a on a black beard bloodline Zulu Alpha and do some camping and some outdoor activities with that and use it as intended and i even bought a, a scuffed up one that that, 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 that off ebay purposely because i believe that watch has a story and i kind of want to continue it so i'm really looking to get my hands on that and what else uh yeah and an elliot brown holton um a holton professional uh, which is a watch that i really really want to get my hands on um i'm hopefully going to work on the element starts of a, of a special project with Elliot Brown to create a astute class submarine special edition Elliot Brown Holton, um, which is something that, that is very, very early on in the pipeline uh, that I will be executing in the next few months and trying to get off the ground. Uh, but when I do, uh, I will love to show that watch to the world, but I would love to get my hands on a, a bare bones, like, proper issue, um, Elliot Brown Holton because the, the aesthetic of those watches right now is just so cool. And if they do go on to have a career similar to that, that the CWC SBS has had, that would be just awesome to have both of those in my collection side by side. I'd love to do a few shots of that. So yeah, there's, there's infinite, infinite watches out there that I would love to add to the collection uh, if we all had bottomless pockets, but we don't. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. One, one brand I, that, comes up a lot obviously with, with fellows from the uk and one that i would like to kind of get you know maybe more of a more of your insight on directly would be elliot brown um yeah, obviously yeah. obviously i've heard of them i've seen them um you know being over in in the western hemisphere it's, it's a lot of like you said resco sangins aries things like that over here yeah. and elliot brown always pops up uh, sort of in you know similar to how vertex does over in the uk and things like that right mm. what is it yeah. about elliot brown in your opinion that makes them um such a great 
piece? What is it about them that sort of has this appeal compared to, you know, over brands like CWC or like brands yeah. like, uh, like Vertex over there? Is it, is it the pricing? Is it the quality? I've never had the chance to handle one and I know they're pretty mm. new to the scene. So they, they are new to the scene, but they're also pretty, they're probably, they're pretty making a name for themselves over mm -hmm. here because Elliot Brown really has a lot of traction with the military over here at the moment. Uh, it's making special edition watches for so many different organ military organizations and units here in the UK. Um, and it's also open to working with anybody who's got a reason to have a special, a special projects watch made with them. The watches mm -hmm. themselves are really, really good quality, really good design, um, big, heavy, kind of really hard wearing watches that, that, that have just as much usability as CWC. Uh, they, they're a breakaway from, you know, the traditions of CWC. They're a little bit larger. Uh, they're, they're very, very much more eye catching, but they are in themselves in their own right, fantastic watches. Uh, I have a Canford, uh, which is an internal bezel quartz 200 meter diver. And it's one of the best, one of the best watches I've ever owned, uh, simply because of the quality and the way it wears. I did have a Breitling Super Ocean 44, uh, which was one of the first high-end watches that I added to my collection. Uh, but I, mo I moved on from that uh, and was always looking for something to replace it. But I didn't expect a 500-pound, 200-meter um, internal bezel diver to fill the boots of a a Breitling Super Ocean, which it has, uh, simply because also for me, it is the Royal Navy Submarine Service Special Edition, as I mentioned before, but they've also done um, special editions for elements of the Royal Air Force, the British Army, the Royal Marines. They've done loads of different collaborations and those the quality of those watches and how they found their way into the operational elements of these units has really helped them get, gain a name for themselves. They're based down in Poole in Dorset, and they're a small company right now, but they have a large following mm -hmm. uh, for good reason as well. Um, there's only so much I could probably say about their connections with some sketchy elements of the British Armed Forces. Uh, I, I'm sure everybody can, can guess that for themselves, but they really do um, have traction with them. And that's how they've got their watches off the ground with them. Uh, they're winning a lot of... MOD contracts, uh, providing watches to the British military, which is kind of like an open door for them to move into their watches going all over the world in loads of different operations. And that's exciting for them. So one of the roles that were once fulfilled in the lineage and history that came with CWC, and in by no means am I, am I stepping on the toes of CWC here, which are a, a fantastic manufacturer themselves. Um, but those contracts that were held by CWC are now a lot of them are held by Elliot Brown and these watches are finding their way into the field and they're finding on, on their way onto the, some, some wrists of some really interesting um, very active units and that so as we speak there is a new uh, sketchy watch brand being born it is being molded in steel as we speak now Elliot Brown is out there doing the shit doing the jobs uh, I speak from personal experience there. They are on submarines. They are out there on patrols, doing the sea time, doing the operations on the wrists of the guys that are getting knuckle deep in it. Um, so it, it is getting traction over here massively. And I do have a relationship with Elliot Brown myself. Uh, I have seen a lot of the watches that they produce. I will at some point be going down to their HQ and I will be seeing it for myself and 
exploring the brand that little bit more. But yeah, they have a, a really good rapport because I know Sangin and a lot of companies out there like that over in the US have really good rapport with the US Armed Forces. Elliot Brown have exactly the same thing here in the UK. Um, during the during the Army Navy rugby game at Twickenham in London uh, in May, the man of the match was actually awarded an Elliot Brown uh, Holton special edition just made for the match. Mm-hmm. So the the the, commu- the communication and the level of the relationship that they have with members of the British Armed Forces is growing. And by extension, that's also now catching on with the rest of the world. Um, I know um, that Justin over at Recon Team uh, watch blog, he, he's just about to pick up an Elliot Brown. Uh, a lot of guys over the US side have, have got loads of messages like, oh, hey, what, what are they like? Why are, they, are they decent? And what's the build quality like on them? And I say, well, it's fantastic, mate. You need to get one for yourself and try it out. So I can't wait for them to make that jump over to the UK. I mean, guys like yourself, police officers, anybody, firefighters, anybody in a in a tough job, pick up a Holton, pick up a Holton and try it because it, it, it you will be on the cutting edge of this new wave of military watches that we are now seeing from Elliot Brown. Is they are great and they will put, they will you know give you give you rewards back in spades because they are great watches. It's interesting, you know. I mean, maybe maybe I need to reach out and see if I can get them on the show. I think that'd be kind of fun to chat with them. Someone from the company. yeah, I'm sure Alex. I'm sure Alex would be interested in that. Yeah, he yeah. yeah he would be very interested. That'd be a lot of fun. But yeah, I also think about too, like just with like obviously Canada being connected to the Commonwealth and things like that so much. It's interesting just to see these pieces that have that that British influence with them because so much of what we get inundated with here, obviously being in North America, is the American influence. But obviously going back to the British roots to be cool. Like he's giving me some ideas yeah. already, just kind of thinking about it to suggest to yeah. them that would be kind of a cool so one one thing one thing I will say for any organizations that have seen Elliot Brown and what they what they do and what they're capable of. I mean, just like Rico here in, in the in the Royal Canadian Police, any organizations uh, where you can fulfill an order of over fifty watches, you can actually have Elliot Brown make and design your own special edition watch of, say, a Halton or a Camford, and they will do that for you free of charge as long as you can guarantee them 50 units production so mm. anybody who's in the canadian military if they're in you know the air force or the canadian navy um if you contact them and speak to them directly and and you and you quote their special projects program they will go out of their way to contact you and talk about what kind of design that you're looking for they're very open to it and there's not many brands out there at the moment that will do that uh, especially with government organizations of any kind but they are perfectly open to doing it and as i've said before with the, my explanation of the rnss camford um any watch that you do have produced with a um, special projects program uh, a, a percentage of the profit from that will go to charity of your choice mm. so for yourself rico if you wanted to produce a, a holton um royal canadian police for edmonton say um version then you could do that and name a local charity and the money will go to them out the production of the watches on your team that that kind of thing is perfectly possible interesting well definitely something to follow up with maybe i'll have to shoot him a dm and see or an email and see if i can get uh get chatting (laughs) with him about you know doing something cool together so it'd be really interesting but yeah Yeah. no that's very interesting i appreciate your insights you know Ben, it's been so awesome chatting with you and getting so much information and kind of, you know, uh, getting an idea of what it's like working in the RNSS and what it's like for you with, with watches and your work with Recon Team Watch Blog. You know, what are some of the places where people can kind of touch base uh, with you or they can engage with some of the content you're putting out there? So um, my page is Wrist of Today. So 
for, for anybody who's looking and see more of the watches in my collection, look at how I'm building on it. Look at how I refer to watches that I've taken to see and I've experienced in my time in the military. And if you want to work with me on Instagram, um, my handle is wrist of today. That is my page. So please give it a follow and um, comment and, and on any of this. A lot of the, the, the posts that I put up and the reels that I put up always also come with a little story. They also come with a little explanation of the watch that I'm putting out there and I, and, and I talk about my experience wearing it. So I, I try to create kind of like a side blog um, to my posts on Instagram to give that little bit of extra depth in terms of watches that I'm wearing and why they're, they're special to me and, and why I've found that other people's experiences with these watches have been worthwhile. So please follow of today. Yeah, absolutely. I'll make sure I drop uh, all the, that link in the description box below where anybody can check that out. And obviously, you'll be connected to me to the podcast and things like that as well, too, on my Instagram page. Likewise, for anybody interested uh, in following along with the show or wants to shoot me an email or wants to talk to me or anything like that, you can reach me at RicosWatchesPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, or if you'd like to follow along with on Instagram, just go to at RicosWatchesPodcast, all one word. Um, this episode will be audio only, but if you enjoy other episodes in a video medium, I'd like to check them out, out uh, outside of the regular podcast platforms you can head over to youtube uh just look up rico's watches podcast over there just make sure you like subscribe to the bell icon all that youtube stuff that helps with uh you know getting out into the ether and finding more people and followers and all that internet jazz right there ben it's been awesome chatting with you uh, I, I learned so much it was tremendous hearing about your enthusiasm and some of the really interesting mm-hmm. pieces that you have in your collection and the cool work that you're doing and uh i wish you nothing but the best and i look forward to having you back on the show again one day soon thanks man appreciate it it's been good to be on here cheers <laughs>